Good morning, everybody. I'm really excited about this message, the camel that got through the eye of a needle. God started putting it in my heart way back around Easter time, and uh, finally it came together. So it's one that really went through a difficult birthing process, but that usually means that God's going to do something good. So pray with me if you would. Father, I'm just asking you to cleanse us from all of our sin, and I'm asking you, Holy Spirit, to work in the way that you see fit to convict us where we need convicted, to comfort us where we need comforted, Lord. We just want to hear from you, and we want our lives to be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so hold on to your seats, because we're going to string together a bunch of scripture and history here to uh, show God's power to work in human lives. The camel that got through the eye of a needle. Now, this message is going to be about a particular Joseph in the Bible, mainly. But when I say a particular Joseph, probably two come to your mind. Either the Old Testament Joseph of the book of Genesis, right, who was sold into slavery by his brothers, or the other Joseph that we often think of is Joseph, the foster father or the legal father of Jesus Christ, right? But I'm going to talk to you this morning about a different Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea. Now, Joseph of Arimathea is mentioned in each of the Gospels in just a few sentences. The only time that we hear of him is at the death of Jesus Christ. And how many of you remember what he's famous for, what he's known for? Raise your hand if you know. Okay, a couple of people. He's very famous for giving his own tomb so that Jesus could be buried in it. Now, you know that I like, you know, I, when I get to heaven, I hope to meet Peter and call him Petey. Petey. You got Petey, Johnny. Now we have Joey, okay? I affectionately refer to Joseph of Arimathea as Joey of A. Now, come on, these people had to have had nicknames back in the biblical days, right? Okay, so we've got Joey of A here. And before we go into his story, let's just set the stage with what the Bible says about a few things. First of all, the title of the message comes from Mark 10:25, where Jesus said, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this seems pretty rough for rich people, doesn't it? And a lot of Bible scholars, well, not a lot, but some Bible scholars would say, eh, the eye of a needle, that was just a particular small gate over in Jerusalem, and camels would have to bend to get through the gate. But I go on the side of most Bible scholars who would say, no, Jesus meant exactly what he said here. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a sewing needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus was using a uh, form of speech that he often did, which is hyperbole. Hyperbole comes from two root words. Hyper means over, and bole means to throw. So he was overthrowing a point so that we might know that it would be very difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, one of the reasons I believe he meant exactly what he said here is because other times when he used hyperbole, and the only other time he used it referring to the largest land animal in Palestine, which was a camel, was when he spoke to the Pharisees and he said of them, you know, you will keep the letter of the law, you'll tithe to the penny, but if somebody's laying on the street dying, you won't even help them. So basically Jesus said, you're blind guides, you'll strain out a gnat, from your wine, they use strainers to take the grapes and to strain out little insects that might be in the wine. He said, you'll strain out a gnat, but you'll swallow a camel. Now, nobody ever says, oh, he didn't really mean a gnat. 
you know, and a camel. He did. He was using hyperbole. And so when he talks about the camel in the eye of the sewing needle, he's saying something very serious here. Now, the context of that hyperbole was when he was talking to the rich young ruler. A very wealthy young man came to him and said, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the young man began to brag about all the commandments of God that he was following. And Jesus, not even arguing with him about that, knew what the root of his problem was and said to the rich young ruler, what I want you to do is go and sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and come back, and then you can follow me. Now, of course, we know that Jesus wasn't saying that we have to sell everything we have in order to be saved, but he knew the problem in that man's heart and what he was worshiping. And the rich young ruler walked away from Jesus sadly because he loved and cherished his wealth more than Jesus, and so he wasn't going to gain eternal life. Now, that's the context where Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, after that young man walked away, Jesus said, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. And so he said it to them again, how difficult it's going to be for many people to enter the kingdom of God. And I thought to myself, why were the disciples so amazed that he said this? Now, the disciples, you know, uh, left everything that they had to follow Jesus, and they by no means were wealthy men. But they probably looked around at the average person in the day and thought, well, a lot of us have a lot of wealth. And I read this scripture and I think to myself, so many times when we read these, we think, well, yeah, those wealthy people, you know, Bill Gates and those really rich people, it would be hard for them to find God. But I'm here to tell you that if you're sitting in the sanctuary this morning, you are extremely, extremely wealthy. Everyone in this sanctuary is a rich person, and this applies to you. Because if you have a roof over your head and something to eat every day, and especially if you have at least one television set in your house, You are wealthier than most of the world. And that wealth is a distraction. Amen? One television set in your home is a distraction to pull you away from seeking the kingdom of God. And so I think the disciples were amazed for the same reason we would be amazed. We would step back and say, well, who could ever be saved if you're talking about things that would distract us from you, God? That's when the camel needle statement is made by Jesus Christ. And after he made that statement, the disciples were exceedingly astonished now. And they said to him, well, who then could ever be saved? And Jesus said, with man, it is impossible. If you're trying in your own humanness to follow me, when you are so wealthy and so distracted, it will be completely impossible. But he said, not with God, for all things are possible with God. Amen? Amen. Okay. Enter Joey of A. Now, all the gospel writers tell us about Joseph of Arimathea, but Matthew is a tax collector, and I find it interesting that he, the one who is interested in money, is the only one who tells us outright that Joseph of Arimathea was rich. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. Do you see how he's breaking the mold right here? Jesus just said it's easier for a rich man, a camel, to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Yet Matthew tells us Joey was what? Rich, and he was also a disciple of Jesus Christ. 
Now, not only do we know that he was rich from what Matthew tells us, but historical and archaeological evidence tells us he was very wealthy. Because Joey gave his own tomb to Jesus, and you know that was a tomb that was hewn out of the rock, and it had a rolling stone in front of it. Now, in biblical days, there were three ways that you could be buried. Number one, your body could be thrown into a trench grave and dirt just put over top of it. Wild dogs then could often get to your body and eat you. Number two, you might have a stone box that would be put under the ground. You might. But the way that the very wealthy and the upper echelon powerful people were buried was they were buried in caves that were hewn out of rock. Now, of the 1,000 cave tombs that have been excavated in Palestine, less than a handful of them have round rolling stones in the front, demonstrating to us that these were reserved for the extremely wealthy. The other uh, graves of tombs like that had kind of like cork bottle pop-off, you know, ones that you had to pull off. But this had a nice rolling stone in front of it. And so this shows us that Matthew is telling us the truth. Joseph of Arimathea had to be extremely wealthy. So, the improbabilities, the strikes against Joey of A being a true disciple of Jesus Christ are two. Strike number one, he was very, very rich. And the Bible tells us it will be difficult to enter the kingdom of God when you're rich. I don't know how many of you realize this, though. Strike number two, Joey of A was a member of the Sanhedrin. Now, Sanhedrin, good group or bad group? Everybody say, bad Bad, bad group. Okay, this group of 71 Jewish rulers consisted of Sadducees, Pharisees, chief priests, very religious people who all together as a whole rejected Jesus Christ and trusted in their own religious leadership for their salvation. They were a group that was under Roman power but yet put over the Jewish people and allowed to make a lot of decisions. They were a nasty group when it came to Jesus Christ. For example, the Sanhedrin plotted to have Jesus killed. The Sanhedrin conspired with Judas to betray Jesus. The Sanhedrin used false witnesses to condemn Jesus. The Sanhedrin sent him to Pilate and pressured Pilate into pronouncing the death sentence over Jesus. Everybody say, Sanhedrin didn't like Jesus, did they? Okay? Now, Joey was rich, and he was also a member of the... Sanhedrin, this guy has got some strikes against him as far as his ability to follow Jesus Christ. Luke 23, verses 50 and 51 says, There was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, and he was a what? A good and righteous man. Wow. So it's possible... And, and I'll tell you that in modern day, what we would compare Joey of A to is a senator. He had like the power of a senator. He was a political leader. And he was very, very wealthy. And the Bible says that on top of that, he was a good and a righteous man. And look what Luke tells us. Look what the physician Luke tells us. He's very clear. And he's the only one that tells us this. He said, who had not consented to their decision and action. You with me? 
So while he sat on the council of the Sanhedrin, Luke is clear to tell us, and the Sanhedrin didn't all have to meet at one time. There were segments that could meet. So we don't know exactly how this happened, but Luke makes it clear that uh, Joey of A pulled himself away from this vote and he refused to consent to their decision and action to have Jesus crucified. Amen? Okay. Why? And I love this. I love that the Bible puts this in one sentence. Why did he not consent to their decision and action? Because he was looking for the kingdom of God. That's a beautiful statement. This man had all the wealth and all the power of the world at his fingertips. He could have invested in the earthly kingdom that he had power and wealth over, but instead he was looking for a kingdom from another place. Amen? And that is what God is calling you and I to do, even in the context of where we live, to be looking for a kingdom that is eternal and that is greater than what this world can offer. And so the question I'd like to ask you at this point is, are you a disciple of Jesus Christ who's in a rough environment, but yet you're looking for the kingdom of God? How many of us in the sanctuary this morning have to work in secular places, amen, where we are looking for the kingdom of God, but it ain't so easy to be there, is it? Okay? How many of us deal with family members and we are shunned by friends and family because of our stand for Jesus Christ, but we're still looking for the kingdom of God? If you are one of those people, if you're stuck in a difficult position like Joseph of Arimathea was, I would encourage you to take heart and to take Jesus into your arms. Hallelujah. Watch this. There was a man named Simeon in the New Testament. He was looking for the kingdom of God too, and he found it. In your Bibles, if you have them in Luke chapter 2, there's an account of Jesus being brought to the temple for his dedication, Mary's purification and the dedication of Jesus. Jesus would have been a baby here. And in Luke chapter 2, we find this man, Simeon, in Luke 2.25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout. And he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. In other words, he was waiting to see how God was going to comfort and save his people. And the Holy Spirit was on Simeon. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And so Simeon came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. I want you to recognize something here. This man, Simeon, took baby Jesus up into his arms, held him up and said, Lord, now my eyes have seen your salvation. Simeon did not hold up a church doctrinal sheet and say, I believe one, two, three, and four doctrinal points, therefore my eyes have seen your salvation. Do you get this? Simeon did not hold up a church attendance roster or an offering sheet and say, I've done all these things and therefore my eyes have seen your salvation. Simeon held in his arms the person, Jesus Christ, and said, now my eyes 
have seen your salvation. In other words, salvation does not come by religion or obedience to doctrine or a set of teachings. How does salvation come? By what? By holding and embracing Jesus Christ, the person. Now, we're going to come back to Simeon, so keep that in your mind. I want to tell you about another guy that we know is looking for the kingdom of God, and his name was Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus in John chapter 3? He was a Pharisee. He was also a member of the Sanhedrin. And the Bible says that he came to Jesus by night, probably because he didn't want to be seen looking, uh, you know, trying to find out more about Jesus when he was on the Sanhedrin too. He might have gotten in trouble. So he comes to Jesus by night and he looks for him and he asks about how to enter the kingdom of God and Jesus tells him he has to be born again. And he goes through this whole seeking process. But I want you to realize that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus searched for the kingdom of God, but both of them did so secretly. Watch this. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Anybody ever been a secret disciple? I was one the other day in a restaurant. Anybody ever get, like, a fear of what somebody's going to think of you? Okay, Joseph of Arimathea, he was a disciple of Jesus, but he was following him secretly as he was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was following Jesus secretly because he was afraid of what the Jews were going to say about him, what the Jews were going to do to him, how they were going to affect his life. Not a good thing to be a secret disciple. Because here's what Jesus said. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and all the holy angels. Wow. So there comes a point. There has to come a point in every human life where a secret disciple becomes an open disciple for Jesus Christ. It's got to happen. And you talk about the eye of a needle. You think about Joey Ave, he was rich, he was a member of the Sanhedrin. I'm telling you, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Do you know what Jesus said about the Pharisees? A lot of bad stuff, right? One of which is this. Watch what, he, watch what Jesus one time said to the Pharisees. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you going to escape being sentenced to hell? That's a big rhetorical question, isn't it? And so we see that both Joey and Nicodemus had strikes all against them. They were not the type of person that you would see become an open follower of Jesus Christ. But remember, all things are possible with God. Amen? So watch what happens here. First of all, Nicodemus, and I'll skip through this, but he did, he, in John chapter 7, we see there was one point in Nicodemus' life that even though he came to Jesus by night, one time he did openly defend Jesus in the daytime. So we see him making a little bit of progress. progress. But I want you to concentrate back on Joey of A. I want you to think about his life. I want you to realize that he was a secret disciple, afraid of the Jews, trying to follow Jesus, but a little bit confused, not doing exactly what he should do, but wanting to have the Lord. Now, the next thing I want you to do, and this is a difficult thing, is to think about the scene after Jesus died on the cross. 
So I want everybody just to go there in your minds. When we read the Bible, we need to go in our minds to where it was. I want you to think about that scene. So you have Jesus. He died at 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And at 6 p.m., the Sabbath would start. And according to Jewish law, anyone that was hanging on a tree was cursed. And that body, that dead body, needed to be removed and taken down before the Sabbath. So there was now a three-hour window, according to Jewish custom, to get Jesus' body off the cross. But before we deal with that, I want you to think about the body of Jesus Christ hanging on the cross. And I want you to realize that at this point, He has been severely, severely, severely abused. Correct? He has been flogged and beaten to the point where His intestines were no doubt spilling out His sides and His back. He has had a crown of thorns pressed down on his skull and head so that blood is now coming from the top, coming from all around the sides. Intestines, no doubt, muscles are able to be seen. He's had a spear put through his side where water and blood flowed. He has been spit on. His beard has been ripped out. He has been bruised. He has been hanging. His hands and his feet are bleeding and pierced. This is what, and we, of course we need, mean no respect to Jesus, This is how gruesome and repulsive his body would have been. Are you with me? Let's just get real here for a second. I give all the credit in the world to EMS workers, for example. People who will come to the scene and look at a body that's been in an accident. Can you imagine the purposeful misery and abuse that Jesus' body has just been through? Now, he is hanging on the cross and he has just died. I... I'm not laying blame anywhere, but I'm just telling you that his disciples are nowhere to be found. Okay? His family members, hey, some of the women show up at the tomb after he's been buried, but his family members, his disciples, after he's died, he's hanging on the cross, they're gone. Nobody's there. And this, this breaks my heart because I want you to, I think to myself, everybody who followed him while he could feed them bread and fishes and he was performing miracles and doing all these wonderful things, everybody who followed him while he was alive, yeah, that was all fine and good. But now he's dead. Now he's a corpse. A bleeding, bloody, gruesome, repulsive corpse hanging by nails on a cross and everybody's gone. Now, I don't have children of my own, and there are times that I wonder, if my husband dies before me, who's going to care about my body when I die? Who's going to take care of me? And I think of Jesus hanging there. There's his body, and everyone's gone. What's going to happen? I mean, if you love someone in life, don't you honor their body in death? And when evening had come, Mark tells us, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and he asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. So this man who was all the time a secret disciple of Jesus, 
Now the Bible tells us it actually took him courage. Of course it did. He's putting his career on the line. He's putting his reputation on the line. Maybe his life on the line. And he goes to Pilate because he has the call to be able to do so. He goes to Pilate and he asks for the body of the man that they just crucified for blasphemy between two thieves. Can you believe it? Who goes? Peter goes, right? Because Peter loved Jesus, right? No, John goes because he was one of his closest friends. No, one of Jesus' brothers or his mom or somebody went. No, none of them went. Do you know who went? Joey of A took courage. Now, here's where it gets wild for me. Watch this. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Everybody wants Jesus while he's alive and he can do something for you. But who wants you when you're just the corpse? Who wants to honor your body when you're dead? I'm going to tell you something. Somebody who really loves you. Amen? And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down... Now, here's where I get stuck. I can't stand a lot of gory things, but I'm telling you that this man, he must have really loved Jesus. Can you imagine walking to the cross and taking that bloody, bruised, disgusting, gory body and taking it down with your own hands? holding the body of Jesus Christ and wrapping him in a shroud with your own hands. That's love. And when nobody else did it, Joseph of Arimathea took his body in his own arms and he wrapped it in a linen shroud and he laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock and he rolled a stone against the entrance to the tomb. Remember Simeon? He held Jesus in his arms and said, My eyes have now seen your salvation. Isn't it something? He held Jesus when he was a baby, but when Jesus was dead, when his body was gone, Joey of Arimathea picked up that dead body, bleeding and bruised as it was, and said, Jesus, I love you enough. I know you're my salvation. Amen? And Joseph took the body and he wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and he laid it in his own new tomb which he had cut in the rock and he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and he went away. Luke tells us this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus and he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. John tells us, so Joey of A came and took away his body. Watch this. Nicodemus also who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. By the way, scholars tell us that that was enough myrrh and aloes to bury a king. And so he did. And so Nicodemus the Pharisee, the rich Pharisee, the follower of Jesus by night, and Joseph of Arimathea, who formerly was afraid to be known as a disciple buried their king. 
So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Who took care of the gruesome, bloody, beaten body of Jesus? Who loved him enough to put him in the tomb? Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. God's unlikely provision. I want to say two things at this point. Number one, if you have ever wondered as you come to the end of your life how God is going to provide for you, if you've ever wondered at any point and said, my friends, my family, they've forsaken me, I don't know who I have left, who, how is God going to provide for me? I want to tell you something, God provides for his own. Amen? It wasn't Jesus' disciples, it wasn't his family that came and cared for his body and placed it carefully in the tomb to fulfill scripture. It was a very unlikely man, Joseph of Arimathea, who nobody would have thought would be the guy. God provides. Isaiah said 700 years before Jesus was ever born, Isaiah made this prophecy. He said about Jesus that they made the grave of Jesus with the wicked. Jesus died between two what? Two criminals, two thieves. He died with the wicked because he had to take on our sin and died the way that wicked people die to die in our place. Amen? But the Bible also predicted 700 years before he came that he'll make his grave with the wicked, but also with a rich man in his death. And so he was buried in the tomb of a wealthy man to show that while he took on our sins with the wicked, he truly is the king. Amen? And he died and made his his grave with the rich man in his death. Now watch this. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Jesus. God put him to grief. And when Jesus' soul makes an offering for guilt... Jesus will see his offspring. He'll see his children. He'll prolong his days and the will of God will prosper in his hands. Now that's a mouthful, but here's basically what I want you to see. After Jesus has made the sacrifice for our sins, the Bible says he will see the children he's paid for. Amen? And I submit to you this morning, as I close, I want you to think about this. That while Jesus was up in heaven at the right hand of God the Father looking down on his earthly body. Watching Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, the two most unlikely men in the world, taking his body and caring for it and placing it in the tomb. I believe that Jesus was looking down and saying this. Those are my boys. I just paid for them. They're my boys. It might not have been the people that other people would say were Jesus' boys, amen? But they were his and they proved it in the end. I'd like you to bow your heads with me for a moment. God, we come before you in this moment. I know we've taken a little bit more time than usual, but I think it's very important, Lord, that we understand that nothing is impossible with you. 
And I think it's very important that we take inventory in our own soul because I know myself as I was working through this message, the question I kept asking myself was this. If I lived back then, would I love you enough to go to the cross and honor your body? Would I love you enough to do the difficult thing? To care and love you, Jesus, even when it costs me? Even when it's hard? I'm sure it was not easy for a wealthy, privileged, powerful man to hold the bleeding, repulsive body of Jesus in his arms. But he knew that that ugliness and that gore was for the salvation of his soul. And he took you into his arms. And I just pray in Jesus' name for anyone in this sanctuary this morning who would with me want to say, God, I might be unlikely. Nobody may know how much I love you. I may have been hiding a lot of what I think about you, God, but I want to come out into the open. I want to follow you in the end when it all comes down to it. And I want to do it even when it's hard. If there's anyone else who would say to Jesus with me, Jesus, I want to love you that much. That I stick with you to the very end. Because I know what you're about. I love you, Jesus. If that's you, would you raise your hand with me in commitment to follow Jesus in a new way? Hallelujah. Anybody else? There's a lot of hands going up and we thank you, Lord. May we love you, love you, love you to the end. If we're secret disciples, bring us out into the open. If we feel it's impossible for us to be the person that other people are, help us to know that nothing is impossible with Jesus Christ. And make us so dedicated that we will honor you to the end. And Jesus, thank you you're looking down today and saying that's my girl that's my boy we love you this morning in Jesus name Amen